Acts chapter 9. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come before you and worship you. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word and show us what you would want us to see from this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're looking at Acts chapter 9, the story of Saul's conversion. We first were introduced to him when he was at uh, guarding the garments when, when uh, Stephen was stoned. And uh, what we know about him is that he is a Pharisee. He is part of the Sanhedrin, so he's at least 30 years old. And we know that he would have to be married to be part of the Sanhedrin. And he's an up-and-comer. He's, he's an up-and-comer up until this moment. <laughs> Psalm, Psalm, Acts, chapter 9, verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might be able to bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined around him a, a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecute you me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. And he trembled and astonished, said, Lord, what will you have me do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go in, into the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. And the men of the journey with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, neither did he eat nor drink. All right, so we have the beginnings of the story of Saul. And it says he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. <laughs> uh, this is pretty strong language. You know, he's, he's, he is out to get people. Uh, he was, you know, threatening people. He was uh, wanting to, to kill them. And it was against the disciples of the Lord, and not just the apostles in his case. He wanted to get anybody who followed God. And so he went to see the high priest and it says in verse 2, his de and desired of him letters to Damascus or edicts. All right, saying, I can come. Now, it's interesting enough in this, though, is that the high priest in Jerusalem had no authority over Damascus to be able to pull, to pull somebody because Damascus is a whole other country. All right, so it's kind of an interesting thing. That would be like us saying, we're going to give you the license here in America to go arrest people in Mexico uh, and bring them back. Now, we do know that bounty hunters and stuff will do this kind of thing, uh, but this is what this, this area is. The high priest is saying, you're going to go in and anybody found worshiping in the synagogue, basically he's going to go into the synagogues and arrest anybody preaching in the synagogue about the way. And that's what the Christians were called at that, at that time. They were a group of Jewish believers, is what they were considered, that worshiped God and were, were called the followers of the way. And that was the original name of the Christian church, the way. And so we see here that he's being given permission to go into the synagogues and if he finds anybody who are followers of the way, 
he can take them out of the synagogue and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand before the high priest. Now, this is something that is kind of interesting because, again, I'm saying they're leaving Israel, going into Syria, and being able to arrest people and carry them away bound. And this could be potential problems um, with them. And this interesting thing is he says you're going to go into the synagogues and you're going to be able to, and if they be found any in this way, whether they be men or women, that you could bring them back to Jerusalem bound. And it is interesting that they were going after men or women because usually the women had, weren't, weren't looked after, uh, weren't, concerned, weren't considered. But here he says no matter who he finds, he's getting permission to bring them back to Jerusalem where they will probably be stoned because they're following after what the high priest is considering to be a wrong position, a blasphemous position against God. And so he's saying to Paul, Paul's asking for permission to leave Israel, leave Judea, go to Samaria and Damascus and bring people back. So this is kind of an interesting process even when we think about this. And uh, so he, in verse 3, and he says he started on his journey and as he came near Damascus, he suddenly, there was a bright light that shone about him. You know, and the idea is he tells him it was you know, in the daytime and all of a sudden there's a light that outshines the sun, which is a pretty big light. And the word here for shined literally is a flash of light. So if you picture a flashbulb going on, except this is longer than just that light because he's going to be, God's presence has stood in there and all of a sudden a flash of light comes into his, into his, his sight. And he falls to the earth in verse 4. And this isn't just that he was knocked off, off his horse. This literally is the word here for fall or fell is to lie prostrate. He saw God and he knew, he knew what he had seen in this light. Uh, he already understood. He was a Jew. He understood that when God appears, the Shekinah glory of God appears with him. And that's the bright, bright light of God, so bright that it, everybody knows that it's God. Now, I don't know that Paul has ever seen God before this, but all of a sudden he's got a light that outshines the sun. And he goes, he knows <laughs> what's in front of him. You know, um, and, you know, he might even be thinking, oh, good, God's going to bless me on this, on this escapade. You know, I'm out to defend him, and here he, is to def here he is to defend me. His initial thought may be, you know, all right, God is really on my side. He's come to bless, bless me. And we don't, he never says this. He never says it in any other place. But, you know, there is this idea that he's gone out. He thinks he's, he goes out thinking he's serving God. He is going to rid the Jewish faith of this crazy group of people who believe the Messiah has come. All right? So he, in all of his glory, is really thinking, I'm doing God's will. This is one of the most dangerous groups of people to deal with is when somebody thinks they're doing th something for God especially when they're not. That sounds like now, like when somebody kills a baby, say, well, God told me to do it. Or do anything. Or do anything that, you know, he would. Anything that's contrary to Scripture, that God, and they say God told me to do it, they're a very dangerous group. This is why 
the, the Muslims are so dangerous because they'll do things thinking they're serving their God and doing good. And even with Christians at times, there will be things done that make no sense. People who will destroy abortion clinics because they're trying to defend the unborn, but they'll go kill the abortion workers. You know, that, that nothing in there is something that God would tell you to do. Now, to go and protest them and all that, not a problem. It's not my style, not my style, but it's, you know, at least that makes sense. But to go out and do harm, trying to do what's right for God. Trying to save unborn babies. Yeah, we're... We're going to kill people to save, save them from killing people does not make a whole lot of sense. All right? So this is where Saul is. He is all into this. He's going to get these people, and he's not necessarily planning to kill them in person. He's just going to drag them off to Jerusalem so they can be tried and thrown into the pit and stoned. So he's going out to kill them. <laughs> maybe, not, maybe not the one who's actually doing the killing, but he's doing everything he can up to the kill. He, he's, he's trying to purify the Jewish religion. In his mindset, these guys, are, these guys are committing blasphemy. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah did not, Jesus did not live up to what he thought the Messiah was supposed to do up to this point in time in his training. So in his mind, he is trying to defend God. And, you know, in history, even in church history, it's been a big deal. The Catholic Church did much destruction of people to try to purify their religion. The Reformers weren't much better, even though they led us into the Protestant Reformation. They killed each other. The Calvinists killed the Lutheran, the, Kildren, the, the Lutheran killed the Calvinist, and they all killed, and they would kill the White, people that followed Wycliffe, and they followed the... You know, they killed the different, you know, all these different reformers would, we were so sure that they were right and everybody was, else was wrong that it was now our obligation to go kill anybody who didn't agree with us. I am glad we're not quite that bad in this day and age. But the flip side of what we do in this day and age is we almost accept everything without trying to defend. So maybe we're just as bad the other direction as they were in trying to be overly protective. All right, they were so protective, they were gonna kill anybody who didn't, and you know, some of the things that they killed people over were really stupid things to kill people over. Uh, you know, you don't believe that, you know, in eternal salvation you do, and they started with killing each other. You know, we, you don't believe that you, you had to be baptized a certain way and they'd kill each other over it. You know, there were some really dumb things they were killing each other over. And this is where Saul is right now. He is so sure that Jesus was a false messiah, and he's got this whole group of Jewish believers that are following the wrong thing. And, you know, we look at this, and we have uh, uh, the, the high priest who kills people because God says, Moses says, who is on the Lord's side? And he goes out and he kills ten, you know, leads the group to kill thousands of, of Jews who were disobeying God. Now, God had told them to. And this is the process that, you know, Paul, is, or Saul at this time, is looking and saying, God, you, I am jealous for you. I am zealous for you. I am going to protect our Jewish beliefs. This group of people are way off into right field. As a matter of fact, they're not even in right field. They're off in the next field over. 
You know, they're not even playing on the same field, even though they're saying they're, they're, they're on our field, and that's how he's looking at them. And so he's going out and saying, I'm, gonna, I'm out there to purify all of these bad eggs because they're going to really make things bad. And, this is, and he's going in with a godly attitude. So I almost think he might have been thinking when he first saw this site, you know, oh, good, God's come, God's come here personally to bless my, bless my activities. And so he falls down and he gets and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecute you me? And this persecution literally means harass trouble. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, so cause, cause misery. So this is a pretty serious question. He's going in thinking he's serving God. He sees the Shekinah glory of God. And he gets this message, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he gets the message real quick because who is he persecuting? He's persecuting the followers of the way. So God has just now come in and saying, uh, this is me. You are, you are harming me. And this is going to be interesting. And so Saul actually asks in verse 5, kind of a rhetorical question because he knows who's talking. Who are you, Lord? <laughs> you know, uh, am, I seeing, am I seeing the Satan? You know, am I seeing, in this case, Lord is curios, meaning Lord or, or a master. Okay. I think he also knows who this is. He's kind of hoping that maybe it isn't God. Maybe, maybe it's Satan in disguise or something. But he's going, who are you, Lord? And his answer was the last one, who, the last ex- one he would have ever expected. He says, I am Jesus whom you persecute. All right? Uh, the very one who claimed to be Messiah that he's saying isn't Messiah is the one who's standing in front of him in the Shekinah glory of God. This is, this is a powerful, I mean, we've, I'm trying to picture us where he's at. This isn't just a, a inter- interchange between him and, and an angelic force. He's seeing the Shekinah glory of God, which to him means it's God's presence. It's like Moses. It's Moses standing in, before God and ending up shining in the, in, in the, in the Shekinah glory. And, Mo, and Saul is seeing this glory, and God comes to him in the Shekinah glory, and he says, by the way, I'm Jesus. Because Jesus had said, I am, I am God, we, I am one. You know, and everybody who tells to tell you that Jesus never said he was God, he forgave sins, he accepted worship, and at various times he said, I am. And then at one time he said, before Abraham was, I am. And the people understood exactly what he was trying to say, and they tried to stone him. So in many places, Jesus claimed to be God. And... Saul is very much aware that the apostles and followers of the way believe that Jesus is God. He is literally, in his case, he's going, from Deuteronomy, the Lord our God is one God, is ringing in his mind, and all of a sudden these guys are saying, we're following Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is God. As far as he's concerned, they are talking blasphemy and deserve death. And now he's being faced with Jesus, basically claiming, I'm God. Directly to him saying, I am God. You just saw the Shekinah glory. 
He goes, I am Jesus whom you persecute. And then he gives him a very interesting statement. It's hard to kick against the pricks. All right? And this is a interesting statement. It is very literal. It is hard to kick against the pricks, and it's a cattle prod. Right? It's what's used to move stubborn animals. You poke them in their backside, and they would kick, kick against it. But the idiom also means it is you offer vain and perilous or ruinous resistance. He goes, you cannot resist. And just like the animal, when it comes to those cattle prods, they don't resist. All right, if you really want to move a cow or an animal, you take that very pointed stick and stick it on their, their backside. They kick out, but they also move because they're not, it hurts. And they're going to try to get away from it. So it's an idiom that says, you're doing things that are, you can't resist. You're, you're, you're fighting me, and you can't resist me. And this is the beauty of God's work. God is sovereign. If he wants something to happen, you're not going to win in your battle against him. Now, we may think we are. We may, we may try. But it could come down to just this kind of a a, a strong point where God says, I'm going to come before you and I'm going to tell you who I am and you're going to see if you can try to fight me. And this is what he's telling Paul or Saul at this time. You cannot win. An idiom is anything that doesn't necessarily mean exactly what it says. An idiom in English that we would know is it's raining cats and dogs. Oh, okay. I mean, that's an idiom. You know, we don't literally have cats and dogs raining. We're just saying it's really pouring down rain. But the, the actual term doesn't mean anything about what it's talking about. So we have this idiom where he says it's hard to kick. It, it, it's virtually impossible. And, and the idea, this one is very close to what it is. I mean, you stick the animal with, the, with a nice sharp point and he moves. And basically God is saying, I've been moving you in a direction and you're trying to resist. And this is very interesting. He has been taught Saul has been taught by the best teacher of his age. He is an up-and-coming leader within the, 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 the uh, Sanhedrin. You know, he, is, he is the hot shot coming up. And God's saying, I've been, I've been poking you in another direction, and you are fighting hard against it, so now here I am to talk to you. Uh, and <laughs> trembling and astonished... <laughs> Of course it would be. <laughs> he goes, Lord, what would you have me do? All right. Well, in this case, he doesn't, you know, he, he has been thinking he's doing what God wants him to do. But now he's face to face with Jesus. And he's persecuting Jesus or his body, his bride. And he's going in fear what do you want me to do? But he has the right attitude. He's not going, I don't believe you. He's not going, I don't, I don't understand. But what is it that you want me to do? And his answer is very interesting. But it's the, interesting, it's the answer God almost always gives us. It goes, arise, go into the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. He didn't go in and tell him what he needed to do right away. Very rarely does God give us 
more than the next step in our, in our instructions. Part of it is because it would scare us to death if he told us the whole picture. You know, if he told you, you know, Betsy, in your case, if he told you you're going to go to church and within a few years you're going to be teaching, you're going to go, uh-uh, not going anywhere near church. You know, but he does that to us all the time. He moves us one step at a time and then adds to the steps and adds to the steps as we're getting ready to be able to respond. And here he's telling Saul, you have a very easy step. Go to the city and then I'm going to tell you what to do. Now we're going to find out that this step isn't all that easy. The light has blinded him. You can't see. All right. Uh, and it says, the men of the journey stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing nobody. This has got to be something bizarre for them. They're looking around. There's this voice. And there's nobody there. Never says whether they saw the light or not. I don't think they did. I don't either, because I think it's just personal. I think this is between Saul and them. They heard a voice. If they at least saw the light, they would have known where to focus. My translation says they heard the sound but did not see anyone. Right, they did not see a man. They did not see anyone. So I don't think they saw the light. Otherwise, they'd at least figure they saw an angel or something. They're thinking they're hearing a ghost. Or possibly God. I mean... You got Paul talking to this, talking to this voice, and his voice talking back to Paul, um, but they didn't see anybody. This has got to terrify them as well. Um, and then it says, "And Saul rose from the earth, and when his eyes opened, he saw no man, and they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. He has been blinded, temporary blindness by the bright light. We don't know. God made sure that he couldn't see." He's now fully dependent on others. And he was three days without sight. And during that time, he didn't drink or eat. He went on a fast. He wants to now know, God, I'm going to come before you. And this is the beauty of fasting. If you've never fasted, there are good times to fast. And when you're looking for instruction from God, fasting is something that can be very good. Doing without now, we can fast anything. The biggest thing we normally fast is food because body, you know, most people like to eat. I know I do. Uh, you know, so to fast is a really big deal to be able to say, God, I'm going to give up eating to focus on you. Now, there are people in our world that fast just because they think it's healthy. And it probably is healthy you know, to, to, to fast for a day. But you know, the biblical fast is to fast and take the time I would be doing whatever it is, eating usually, and focusing on God and being able to battle. Now, people will go, well, I'm going to fast TV. I'm going to fast, you know, whatever. I'm going to, you know, and there's not as much as a physical demand on those things. Now, if you're really addicted to your television and stuff, then maybe a fast on television would be very useful. A fast on news might be useful, especially in our day and age. And very, very beneficial. But Saul is going on a fast for three days. He doesn't eat or drink. And he is probably in prayer the whole time. Because remember, he's a very righteous man. He's already been seeking God for the best of his ability. 
and he thinks he's serving God, and all of a sudden God has spoken to him and saying, you've been persecuting me. And I'm not going to tell you what to do. You're just going to go to the city, and then I will tell you what to do. So right now he's in a fast and saying, I am going to wait until God speaks to me. And he's gone into a fast. And I recommend if we're making it, if you have a decision to make that's a big decision, a fast is a good thing to start doing and saying, God, I'm going to fast until you speak to me and give me some information and, and knowledge. And fasting is all through the scriptures to fast and to be able to say, God, I'm coming before you for direction, for guidance. And this is what Saul is doing. He's fasting. You know, he just had God speak to him, which is unusual, directly in person by voice, not just through the word and the scriptures. And it wasn't a message that he wanted. And it wasn't a message that he expected. So now he's in, he's in a confused state. And if you're ever in a confused state between you and God and what you think God wants and what, what the Bible's telling you, then the fast is a really good thing. To sit down and say, God, I am just, I'm going to give up eating right for a while and you and I are going to have as much communion as we can and, and look, for, look for an answer. And this is what is happening with Saul. Verse 10. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said, Arise and go into the street that is called Straight, and inquire in the house of, Ju of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prays. And has seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, how much evil he hath done unto the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on your name. But the Lord said unto him, Go your way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. And I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus that appeared unto you in the way that as you came has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes as if it had been scales, and he received sight wherewith, and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he, sat, he was strengthened. Then was Paul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is this not he that destroyed them which were called, that called on the name of this name in Jerusalem, and came hither with the intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priest. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews that which dwelt in Damascus, proving that this is the very Christ. All right. Here we have this interesting dynamic of shows how many times God asks us to do something that might be extremely scary. All right. Uh, disciple named Ananias. We don't know much more about Ananias than this. There's one more reference about, about him you know, being, being used. But God calls him and says, Ananias. 
And he very graciously says, I'm, here I am, God, what do you want? <laughs> Basically, you know, God, I'm here. You know, I'm listening. And he gives him a very interesting thing. He goes, arise and go into the street, name straight. So he tells him exactly where to go, tells him exactly whose house to go to. <laughs> and he says, go, go to the street, which is straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prays. So this is very specific instructions that he's getting. I have not had many times where God's given me this very specific instruction. Uh, now, I, I talked to a pastor, and I truly believe him because I know he was a man of God, and he and his wife were looking for a house, and he said that God told him what streets to turn on, and he turned on a couple streets and found the perfect house for him and his wife, and we had been listening to the voice of God telling him where to turn. And he goes, I was told to turn right here and left here. And, you know, and he goes, and I was told to stop. And there was a house for sale that was the perfect house. God still does this. He's not done it for me, for whatever reason. But he still speaks and tells people. And he says, go and seek out Saul of Tarsus because he prays. Paul spent this three days in prayer. He really was wanting to know God's will. He, he thought he had been doing God's will. Now he finds out he's not doing God's will. So now he spends three days in prayer saying, God, what is it that you want me to do? Very interesting statement. And he then goes on to say that he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming. Ananias, he knows you're coming. Here's a statement that Ananias really doesn't have a choice. <laughs> Paul's been told Ananias is coming, so Ananias is going to come. It's amazing how God works in his sovereignty. Uh, and he says, you're going to put your hands on his eyes, and he's going to be able to see. So God is very specific with Ananias on what's going to happen. Now, Ananias' answer is not very surprising at all. Uh, Lord, I've heard about this man. <laughs> you know, uh, he is out to kill the saints. He is out to arrest. You know, he, is, he has destroyed the, the, the church in Jerusalem, basically, and you want me to go see him. It's very scary when God tells you to go see or do something that can be dangerous. Place yourself in Gideon's shoes. Gideon, I want you to take an army and go fight the enemy that's got tens of thousands of people so he gathers an army and God tells him your army's too big and keeps whittling it down until he's got 300 people to go up against 10,000. He's terrified. Samson, able to fight the enemies. You know, Elijah. You know, we, we, make, we make a big deal out of Elijah going on to Mount Carmel with 450 priests of Baal. He knows who God is. But this is a pretty interesting place. One against 450, and not only that, but the king's on the 450 side and could call an army down to arrest you without even waiting for the battle to, to happen. Moses goes before, king, uh, before Pharaoh and says, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. The most powerful man in his day, and he's saying, God <laughs> says, let, let his people go. 
Pharaoh at any moment, you know, and it's an amazing thing that Pharaoh didn't have him killed. That's a miracle in and of itself. He came as an embassy, you know, as an as a, as a embassy, um, ambassador, so he had that right, but he could have easily exiled him or killed him or, you know, and yet he didn't. God protects his people when it's time and we just need to step out. And sometimes it is very hard to step out. When God says, go do this, go do whatever it is, and Ananias is being having told, I want you to go see Saul. <laughs> the worst enemy the church has up, up till this point. Now they're going to have worse enemies later on, but up to this point, Saul's been the worst enemy. He's the one that's getting ready to drag people in. He really truly believes that these people are bad. They're going to destroy Judaism. They're going to be the end of God's relationship with mankind because of all their blasphemy. And he has this problem. And Ananias is you know, rightfully probably saying, uh, God, uh, is it really you? <laughs> Basically, that's what he's uh, God, uh, am I really hearing the right thing? Uh, this guy has the power to have me executed. He's going to go and see Saul fully expecting that he could be arrested because that's the power that Saul has. And verse 15, but. <laughs> but the Lord said, go your way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me. Basically, he's saying, I have chosen Saul, and he's going to do what I've told him to do. And you know, God gets that way sometimes with people. We are going to do what he wants us to do. And we have the examples all through Scripture where people do things. Jeremiah said, you know, I'm tired of being thrown into prison, God. I'm tired of being thrown into these pits. Every time I open my mouth, I get in trouble. He goes, I'm not speaking you for anymore, anymore. And then was, this next sentence says, your words burned in my mouth. And he goes, I couldn't help but speak. There are times when God will make sure that we do whatever it is we are to do. Saul of Tarsus in this, in this boat. Now Saul wants to do what God wants him to do. He's just misled up to this point. But he really wants to serve God. That's what he thinks he's been doing by attacking the, the, the followers of the way. And he goes, he is to bear my name to the Gentiles. All right. Here's the first big reference to the Gentiles going to get the gospel message. And it says, he's going to bear my name to the Gentiles. He's going to, he's going to go out. And it's an amazing thing that Saul of Tarsus, a leader within the Jewish faith, is sent to the Gentiles. To, to preach to the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Because he had done so much damage to the church there was consequences for his action. He had tried to destroy the church so God says you are going to suffer. This is something that has to be spoken so often to people that they need to really understand there's always consequences for what happens. You know, God can supernaturally bring the consequence and, and throw it away, but he doesn't do it very often. When we make decisions, there's consequences. The decisions we make before we're saved oftentimes have long-term consequences in our life. 
the damage and destruction we have done to our body is going to harm us later on, even though God has given us redemption, he's given us the, a new, new being, but the damage that we've done to our bodies is carried on. And very rarely does he say, okay, I'm going to totally heal you. You know, you smoked for 30 years before you got saved, now you've got emphysema. Very rarely does he come in and get rid of the emphysema or the cancer. It can be part of our testimony. It can be part, you know, part of what he does. But he doesn't usually come in and say, okay, you, you abused yourself for those years. Now I'm just going to take all that away. He gives us the grace to get by, uh, get through what we have to deal with. Just as when later on he's going to have Paul say, I prayed three times for the thorn in my flesh. And the last time God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And there's times when that's the only thing that happens. Saul has been, or Ananias is told that Saul is going to have to suffer. I think he's kind of trying to make Ananias feel a little better too. Okay, this man has caused great suffering, but now he is going to suffer in return. So Ananias, don't worry about it. You just go do what I've told you to do. And almost an implicit threat. Ananias, if you don't go do what I told you to do, there is a consequence on it that you will follow. And this is the interesting thing for us. It is hard sometimes for us to do what God is telling us to do because we're afraid. And God is basically going to tell us, you need to be more afraid of me than whatever it is that you're afraid of. Because there's always that consequence. Verse 17 says, Ananias went, Ananias went his way and entered into the house and put his hands and said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus that appeared unto you in the way, as you came, has sent me that you might receive sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias is being a little interesting in this prayer as well. Uh, I, uh, Saul, I'm here, and, and, and Jesus, whom you saw, <laughs> told me to be here. Uh, I think he's still hedging his bets just a little bit here. But you know, that's not a problem. He was obedient. He was obedient in reminding Saul, because he's fully expecting when Saul gets his sight, that he's going to have him arrested on, on the spot. So he's going, uh, Saul, the Jesus, who you saw, you know, uh, I, have had a, I have had a vision from God myself, and I know that you saw Jesus on the, on the, on the way, the Jesus that you saw has sent me so that you will receive your sight. So this is kind of an interesting thing. He's revealing that God has spoken to him and reminding, reminding Saul that uh, Jesus, you spoke to Jesus and that you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is a beautiful thing, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it says, And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight therewith and arose and was baptized. Now, we don't know, was this literally something fell from his eyes? Because it says, as it were. In other words, his eyes were opened. Now, whether something physically fell out of his eyes or, or if it just opened his eyes, we don't know. This is, again, one of those things where it has the, the, the as it were. So we don't know. There, there's battles between the, the guys who are smart that knows, knows this that some people just think it was. I think something literally fell from his eyes. What, what uh, did you say, as it were? Uh, as, as, it, as it had been scales. 
so, so could it be just that something literally just, he just got his sight, did something literally fall from his eyes? We don't know, and it really doesn't matter. As it had been scales. Uh, it could just be, you know, it's, so there was something, they literally were scales that fell or it would have been, he had something in front of his eyes and they were lifted off. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. Just he can see now. He can see now. Yeah. He couldn't see, now he can see. I can see clearly now. And he immediately rose and was baptized. Well, he got the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, but he was baptized. And I, at this point, I'm sure he was taken for water baptism. Because again, remember, in the Jewish belief system, when you changed your belief system, you got baptized. So, and here, Saul's getting ready to change his belief system real big. Yeah, he's been against Jesus because he did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. He spent three days, and I'm sure that much of what he was going through was the verses about the Messiah. And Ananias is going to teach him more about it. But he knows that he's going to change. And it he arose. He arose and was, you know, uh, so he went and they went out to water trough, the, 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 wherever it went, they found water. <laughs> and he was baptized because Saul understood that he needed to be baptized because he's now ready for new teaching. Uh, and then, and then when he had received meat and was strengthened, then was Saul certain days with the disciples in Damascus. Now, we know how long he spends in Damascus, not from the book of Acts. In Galatians chapter 1, in verse 16, Saul is giving, or Paul at this time is giving his testimony, to reveal the Son to me that I might preach among him to the heathen. Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I to Jerusalem to them which were the apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years I went to Jerusalem. All right? So he is going to sit under the teaching of Ananias and directly from, from the Spirit, for three years before he ever goes to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles. Uh, so when did he start talking and preaching? We don't know. Most people believe that he spent most of that three years in Arabia studying on his own. Okay, remember, Paul is going, or Saul, who's later to be Paul, <laughs> has a very high arrogant streak in him. He's been taught by the, the greatest Jewish teacher. He is a brilliant disciple. He would never have been invited to study under Gamaliel without being a top student because the top priest would go out and they would check out the synagogues and they would look for the very best students or the ones that they felt that they could deal with. And he, his teacher was the number three of all in the Jewish religion. Not just number three in his day. In his day, he was number one. But he's the number three teacher of all time for the Jews. 
and Paul was his disciple. All right. So there's going to be a little bit of an arrogant streak in him. Uh, you know, this would be the equivalent of going to Harvard or Yale. You know, you're, you're the best of the best and you're going into the, the top. Uh, or being invited to go study overseas with some very prestigious school. We don't know for sure. So it's three years from the time, years from the time that, between the time Jesus talked to him and the time that he finally went to Jerusalem. Most scholars believe that most of that time was in the Arabian Desert. And he would have taken the scriptures and we believe that Jesus, and I kind of, I kind of believe that he spent three years in the Arabian Desert speaking with, between him and God, saying, and the Holy Spirit teaching him and, and showing him and he had three years of teaching basically like the Jew, like the, the apostles had three years of, of teaching, three and a half years of teaching. Uh, it is what it's worth. Uh, it's, it, is, it is what it is. He, but there's three years from the time he gets saved to the time he finally goes to Jerusalem, even though it's only one sentence in this, in this uh, section here. But when he returns to Damascus is a straight way he preached Christ in the synagogue that he is the son of God so it isn't that he got saved and all of a sudden went to the synagogue and knew everything he needed to do he had to learn now he knew the scriptures he knew the Messiah's scriptures he knew the son of God's scriptures he knew all of these things he just had to open his mind to see them in a new light in the correct light because Jesus did not fulfill what they thought the Messiah was going to do, so they rejected him. He came along and challenged the might of the Sanhedrin, challenged everything that was going on, didn't obey their man-made laws, and got crucified, and then rose again, and never started a kingdom to throw away Rome. So as far as they're, and to this day, from a Jewish perspective, they look at Jesus and say he was a false messiah. He was a man who claimed to be the messiah, but did not fulfill the messiah's role. This is why in Revelation, when, they, when the Antichrist arises out of, out of nowhere and gives them peace and allows them to build their temple, they think, we have found the messiah. Here's the one that's getting rid of all of our chains, all of these bad people off of our back and giving us the peace that we deserve. And they will follow him thinking he's Messiah because he does what Jesus did not do. He builds a kingdom and allows their kingdom to be advanced. Now, halfway through the three and a half year mark, then he stands up and says, oh, by the way, I'm God. God opens their eyes and they now see that they have been tricked and then they will flee Jerusalem and flee into the wilderness and, and be protected by God for the next three and a half years because he's out to kill them because they did not worship him as God. And then Jesus will come and be the king for a thousand years. But because Jesus did not rule and did not set up a kingdom and get rid of their enemies, they're going, well, you're not the Messiah. This is something we have to be very careful of. When we get hold of a doctrine, it has to be a doctrine that always works and fits scripture. This is the problem with the prosperity gospel here in America. You know, many Christians seem to get prosperous. 
seem to. They really don't. But you know, there are places where people look at the prosperity gospel and said, well, it's not working. I gave God and I didn't get rich. If it doesn't work, it's not of God. And this is why it's important. We need to be ready to submit to God and say, God, I don't know. This doesn't seem to fit all of Scripture. And if God's giving you that point of view, then you give up what it is that you believe and ask God what it is you're supposed to believe. And many times I've talked with people. I, when I talk to somebody who's a Calvinist, and the Calvinist believes that you can't get saved unless God ordains you to be saved. And I'm going, okay, I can follow your arguments. And I can follow the Scripture arguments. They have strong scriptural arguments that will support that you can't get saved unless God has elected you. And then they'll turn around and go, what do you do with all the whosoever will? You know, John 3, 16. Whosoever will, will be saved. And they'll almost always say, well, that's whosoever will and is per, uh, elected. I'm going, uh-uh, you can't put your doctrine into the verse. Your, your doctrine isn't in that verse. You can't add your doctrine to that verse. I go, I understand where you're saving it. And I, and I understand... Uh, election and predestination. I understand those verses as best I can. But I also understand that God says, whosoever will, will be saved. I don't know how to sometimes put those two together very well. One thing I do know is God's a lot smarter than me and he's got, a, and he's got it all figured out. In many cases, I think it's important that we have these things that we cannot understand. If we could understand every teaching in the Bible, we would be God. Because our God would not be big enough to be God. There has to be things in there. If God is God and he's bigger than we are, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, he is greater than we are, then there has to be things that we don't fully understand. That we're going to have to take by faith and say, God, I'm just going to take that by faith. I don't understand. And it's one of those places I don't understand. I don't understand how whosoever will can be true and God is absolutely sovereign. I don't know how those two fit together. Uh, now, I understand how he can make somebody like Paul or, or Saul come to him. He sets it up so there's no other real option. All right. Uh, Saul has been blinded. He actually talked to Jesus. For him to make any other decision than to follow Jesus would not even make human sense. This is, that's one of those places where God says, I have decided something and you are going to do what I said. Theoretically, it was Paul's choice, uh, Saul's choice. Uh, but he was in a place where any other decision would have been totally insane. All right. Uh, you know, when, when uh, Elijah's standing on Mount Carmel and the, and the fire of God comes down and consumes the the, the offering, the wood, the, and, the, and the stones, the people decided they were going to follow God. Yeah. Uh, not much of a surprise in it. All right? Uh, any other decision would have been totally irrational. All right? There are times when God moves in that way. But there's also times when he allows us to have a free will that is free will. And you know what? I'm not even sure even that is true. How many times has God moved people in a certain way to put them in just the right place that they're really not going to make any other decision but for him, if that's what he wants? But then, I mean, if God, <laughs> he's put me in a place where I had a choice. He's actually put people to 
helped me not make the go right the way I was going. Right. I chose not to go with those people. I chose to go the way. It's possible, but yeah. uh, having been a manager for so many years, there were many times when I had people thinking that the decision that they made was their decision when it was what I wanted them to do the whole time. So, but, so he knew I was going to make that decision. Yeah. But he also put the right people to push you in the right directions and to bring the right things into your life so that you would make the right decision. Well, I didn't make the right decision. Yeah. That's the whole point. But, but he also knew that. Yeah. That's what's so But they still had an effect on you because you still remember them. That's true. <laughs> I, I see that picture. Yeah. So... You know, and this is, God's picture for us is more long-term than our picture for, for us. We think of the immediate. God is saying, I'm going to put these people in, and you're going to remember them 10 years, 20 years from now, and you're going to remember the direction they were trying to get you to go, and you're actually going to go the direction that you were supposed to go. It's just going to take you 10 years to do it. Yeah. But, but the good news is, God has to be able to do this, be that big, because otherwise his promise that all things work together for good would be worthless. And also, because there are more pictures to come that look almost exactly like that one, and you go, now I go. Now I know why. Okay, I'll go with that way. <laughs> yep. Um, so Paul goes out and he preaches Christ in the synagogue that he is the Son of God. He finally recognizes who Jesus is. Through his study, through the three years of study, um, two years, whatever, whatever period of time, he starts preaching as soon as he understands this. And he is a powerful teacher. He is, and we're going to see that all through the, his letters. He's powerful. He's well-educated in the word. He had to be to be a Pharisee. He had to be to be taught by the, by, by the number one teacher of his age. So he is well trained and a very interesting verse 21 but all that heard him were amazed <laughs> they were astonished they knew who he was and they go is not this he who that destroyed them which are called on uh, that called on the name of Jesus and he came here with the intent that he might bring them bound to the high priest you know isn't this the one that was coming to destroy them why is he teaching their doctrine now yeah. And this is something that is very important. When people's lives change, we need to understand that God changes lives. And sometimes it's hard to accept somebody whose life has changed over so, so quickly and dramatically. And in this case, it's, they're looking at him and going, we don't understand this. Uh, we, we, we think this is him. Isn't, isn't this the one that came from Jerusalem to, to haul all these people to, to jail and now he's here, one of them? In their mind, they're wondering, is he playing some kind of game? Is he trying to, is he trying to get close to the disciples so he can arrest all of them? But his message is so strong that they're also kind of like, uh, he's convincing us of what he's supposed to be against. So there's a lot of confusion in people. And it says, But Paul increased in more in strength and confounded the Jews that dwelt in Damascus, proving that this is very Christ or Messiah. 
This is the Messiah. And he was able to go to the scriptures and be able to say, huh, uh, guys, uh, this is the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. I know I was wrong. <laughs> you know, I know that we didn't believe him, but he is the Messiah. And here's the scriptures that show it. And, he, and God was able to show him and draw all the scriptures together. And the disciples in the area were able to teach him. And he listened and the Holy Spirit taught him. And he was able to start seeing the scriptures in a little different light. And he's able to use that knowledge to preach and teach. And it says, confounded, bewildered. <laughs> all right. Uh, None of, the, none, of the, none of the rabbis in Damascus were able to stand up against him. Now, you've got to understand, he's well-trained. He's well-trained, and he's confounding these leaders, and he's proving that Jesus is the Messiah. At this point, he's being told Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He went to Egypt. He went to Nazareth, and all the stuff that matches the scriptures, he's being told. He's being told that the children... Children were killed, killed by Herod in, in uh, Bethlehem. And he's going to remember that, uh, that Rachel cried out for her children. He's going to start remembering all these verses about the Messiah that he's been taught. And they're going to be teaching him that Jesus fulfilled every one of those statements. He still doesn't understand why he didn't build a kingdom. But he's going to know this is the Messiah. Look at all these verses that were, were fulfilled He's of the line of David. He's, a, he's born of a virgin. He's going to be taught all these things, and he's going to start going, wow, here, here, here it all is. Here it all is, and now he's teaching. And you know, this is one thing. When somebody is well taught, they can be able to apply that information very easily. He knows all the verses for the Messiah, and he's being taught that he fulfilled the verses of the Messiah. He still doesn't understand the, the conquering and the hero and and the uh, building a kingdom weren't fulfilled, but Jesus himself spoke to him, <laughs> revealed himself as God, so now he knows he is the Son of God, and knows that these now have to be sometime in the future. Now he's still thinking the future is very soon, and he's always going to think the future is very soon. He's going to believe that Jesus is returning in his lifetime, just as all the apostles did, and all the great leaders in, in time have thought Jesus is returning in their lifetime. This is one of the reasons when we say Jesus is returning in our lifetime, when we're looking at all the, all the things coming true, it could still be another, <laughs> it could still be another hundred you know, thousand years before he returns. But you know what? We're seeing the signs. We're seeing everything come together. I don't believe it's that long, but it could very well be, but I'm going to expect him to return any, any moment now because everything is in place. Everything. This is true. We want, to, we want to expect. We want to expect him. We want to be aware that he's coming and be ready. We plan and make our lives as if he's not coming in our lifetime, but we're to expect him. And we're getting ready to face possibility of some great problems even in America we need to prepare for hardship I fully believe that we are going to suffer before Jesus comes back and right now we're only in the beginning edges of suffering and in America I think suffering is coming the rest of the world experiences suffering for Christ and always has 
the world has more martyr has millions of people martyred for Christ every year and we don't hear about it in America trials and tribulations are coming even to America how soon I don't know this election could be a big move toward us being persecuted sooner than later now if it goes the way I'd love it to go we may get another four years of of peace if it goes the wrong way we could have suffering very shortly because churches are being closed down all over the all over our country in the name of protection of the people right? it won't it won't be hard for that to be applied if things go the wrong way we pray for this and we're going to be ready for it no matter what if we face persecution it's not the first time the church has faced persecution in America we've gone away for over 200 years no persecution in America the church has not gone 200 years without persecution before it's been under persecution all the time over the over the millennia and the only places in the world that it hasn't gone very much was here in America and a little bit in basically Canada but all over the rest of the world the church has faced persecution and trials and tribulations in major ways and people have lost their lives we think we're persecuted when people make fun of us we will need to prepare our hearts for persecution to come because it's coming probably in our lifetime for most of us we will face persecution even here in America and we need to be ready to say God I want to stand give me the grace to stand for you but if we're not expecting persecution and we're not ready for it we're gonna reject Christ in a, in, a, in a heartbeat we need to be ready and saying God I am going to stand for you and your grace is going to allow me to stand for you and whatever it takes and you know all the persecution it's not easy it's not easy to have your heads chopped off is pretty easy persecution compared to a lot of what happens you know uh, and it's kind of interesting that all through the scriptures it talked about heads being chopped off and how do the Muslims kill all infidels they chop their heads off you know and they're going to be the biggest group that comes against Christians in the violence and that's their way of getting rid of the, the blasphemous they cut their heads off and that's what God talked about so often you know better than crucifixion and, and the other things that used to be done during those days uh, better than being pressed under under great weights and on stacked on boards that you're on between that you're between you know a lot of torturous things that have been done to Christians over the years and the Catholic Church really did torturous things to the to the Christians you know the Christians that didn't believe in in the Pope uh, we won't even go into them because they're, they're horrible enough that I don't need to make people if you want to know read read Fox's book of martyrs it's it's brutal what was done it was brutal what was done uh, but we're going to face possible death as Christians and it's very likely around the corner the way things are going in many ways yes uh, but many people are afraid of the death even in the first century when so many people did die 
there were lots of people who went up to the altar and dropped the, dropped the little grains of, of a meal on the altar and said, Caesar is Lord. And then went back and repented and, and uh, you know, because they just were afraid to die. But it all really boils down to, Paul said, where's our focus? If my focus is on heaven, dying's easy. Dying is real easy. If my focus is heaven, then dying is easy. Unfortunately, if your focus is really strictly on heaven, I don't think you're going to get out that easy. I think we'll end up spending, if my focus is really on heaven, then God's going to say, okay, we're not giving you the easy way out. We're going to put you in, uh, Corey and, and Betsy, we're going to put you in Ravensbrook where you're going to suffer. Uh, Pastor Wormbrandt, we're going to put you in the prison where you're going to almost forget all about me and really not have a Bible to study. And you're going to have trouble remembering who I am because it's all by my grace that you're going to remember me. So those who don't really have their focus on heaven, then they're, they're going to be facing death because that's a big choice. Do I want to die or do I want to live in this world? Those of us who focus on heaven, we're probably not going to have that choice. We might. I mean, Stephen did, some did, but we're more likely going to suffer. And God said, are you going to have grace? Are you going to accept my grace in your suffering? And are you going to be that example of me in your suffering? But We're ready for that too. This is right here. Uh, Ananias was told, Saul, uh, you're going to talk to Saul because he's going to be shown what he must suffer. Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, went through a lot of hardships. He would have been happy to have died and gone to heaven. But he went through all kinds of pain and suffering and beatings and everything else. And he says he went through it for Christ. And this is our whole thing. Where is our focus? We may very well be challenged to go just like Paul through many sufferings and, and tribulations and trials to honor Christ. Death is the easy way out. For those of us who are true believers, death is the easy way out. You know, all right, as soon as I'm dead, I'm, I'm, I'm with God. You know, I'm with God. That's the easy way out. But to be ready to take a beating to be scourged, to be thrown into prisons, to be starved, to be thrown in prison with the worst of the criminals. Many times Christians, Christians are not thrown into nice little federal prisons like they would be in America. They're thrown in to the uh, bad, of the, bad of the bad, you know, where the people are, you say anything about God and they're ready to kill you because, and beat you and all of that. Yeah, even worse, yeah. So we need to prepare and say, God, I'm whatever you're wanting me to go through and know that God's grace is sufficient. He will give us the grace to get through whatever it is. In Corey Ten Boom, she asked her, asked her dad, you know, how can I go through this? And he says, when do I give you the ticket for the train? When you need it. He says, God will give you the grace when you need it. I would love to think that no matter what happens to me, there's no way that I'm going to fail before God. 
The only problem is I know that I failed too often to begin with, so I cannot take that attitude that, God, I'm going to die for you with, with no problem. Because it is a big deal when it's actually time to face death, to actually accept, God, you know, say, God, I'm ready to go home is going to be a, a big deal. You know, or God, I'm, willing, I'm ready to get beat. And was still used. Yeah, so we want to keep all of this in mind, but be prepared. Saul was told, you're going to suffer. So get pre-warned. <laughs> uh, so, Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we ask you to bless the time that we have. We ask you to guide and lead us. Lord, prepare our hearts for whatever you have in store for us. Give us the grace that we need and help us to always stay focused on you and our heavenly home. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.